Welcome to the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring a special interview with director Nancy Bursky of the new documentary by Sidney Lamette, which is set for a screening at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on Friday, April 22nd. And if you'd like more information about how to see the film at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City, please visit TribecaFilm.com. By Sidney Lamette explores the career of one of the greatest American film directors, Sidney Lamette, of such prestigious and acclaimed films as Dog Day Afternoon, starring Al Pacino, The Verdict, starring Paul Newman, Network, which earned an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay by Patty Chayefsky, using a never-before-seen interview by Sidney Lamette, goes directly to the source as we learn how Sidney Lamette's socially conscious cinema translates into a vast and differentiating filmography. Please visit jogroadproductions.com to learn more about the Road to Cinema blog and the Road to Cinema YouTube series. And don't forget to subscribe to us on our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions. Follow us on Twitter at Jog Road. Follow us on Instagram at Jog Road Productions. And like us on Facebook, Jog Road Productions. And you can write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. And now we join director Nancy Bursky as we discuss her new documentary by Sidney Lamette, which is set for a screening on Friday, April 22nd at the Tribeca Film Festival. For more information, please visit TribecaFilm.com. How did you originally find out about this interview that uh, Daniel Anker had conducted with Sidney Lamette back in 2008? Uh, it, was, it was actually presented to me by American Masters. Michael Cantor, he and I were discussing other film projects, and he said, how would you like to get involved in this? Um, and, and said that they had commissioned this interview, and um, I was very excited about it. I had seen the interview, and I, was, um, I said, you know, I want to look at the interview first and think about how this story might get told. Um, but once I did see, they, he sent me some samples of the interview, and once I saw it, I realized it was something, I, I, I felt I could do something exciting with it. How long uh, was the interview in its entirety? And I think they shot somewhere between three and five days and over 14 hours. Wow. So there, yeah. so there really were probably many directions that you could have taken uh, with the footage then. Exactly, exactly. So I needed to know that I could come up with a storyline that would resonate and, you know, that I felt comfortable, uh, you know, addressing and that I could, I could find that, you know, that, that, that it, was, it was in that interview, and it was. I mean, that, that's the point. I listened to every single hour of that interview, and I, I, with my editor, Anthony Rapoli, and from there we kind of drew out a storyline that really made sense to me and to him. Uh, what was uh, the storyline that you had initially uh, conceived as far as how the whole film would uh, play out? I mean, um, it's it's understanding that though he might argue that he doesn't have an agenda and he doesn't tell um, stories that have moral underpinnings intentionally, that those things come out um, as a result of who he is and how he lived his life. Uh, yeah, no, I, I see that so much uh, in the film because you, you delve into, you know, there's some great archive footage of him as an actor. When uh, when he was a kid, I think one of the first films that he had ever done. 
Um, so you you know you see that sort of you know he he was always fighting for for justice for moral upright and even though he said he was just sort of a craftsman but there was something underlying in those films that uh, you know really was at the center of who Sidney Lumet was as a person. Right. I mean, it's ironic that that film that we show in in that was obviously not directed by him. He was he was featured as a child actor, but it really deals with some of the same issues that he dealt with in his own films. Um, but, but I think we use that film more to reflect on a child growing up in the Depression, and that character that he's playing in that movie is exactly that kid um, who is who is hurt as a result of a, a corrupt landlord allowing a business to allowing a, a, a building to go to go to seed, and um, it catches on fire, and this kid gets hurt as a result. So, um, you know, the whole point of his growing up in, a, in the Depression and living hand-to-mouth with his sister, sharing a room with, with his sister, um, all of those things, as he says in, in our film, he says, you know, you have to feed yourself first before you can worry about some of these philosophical questions. Um, that's reflected in that movie and really what it reflected in a lot of things that he does going forward. Yeah, you can see that in uh, Serpico, in uh, Prince of the City, in Twelve Angry Men. Uh, sort of, it, it's a it's such a huge theme in all of his films. And and what's fascinating is that he's made so many, and they all seem so different on the surface. But what came to me watching the documentary was that there really was a common thread through all of them. Even the the verdict. Uh, it's just it's fascinating to understand that from someone who didn't always write the screenplays of his films yet. You know, he was always there. His voice was always there. And, and in fact, he wrote very few screenplays. I don't think he even started writing the screenplay. I think the first one he wrote, he wrote in conjunction with another writer, was Prince of the City. And then I think he wrote Q&A, if I'm not mistaken. But he really did write very few. I think he responded to the screenplays that spoke to him that way. Um, and, and to be honest with you, the films that we pick in this, to this, in this film are, are films that really do stress those fundamental issues that he cares about. And I don't think we're being arbitrary. These are also the films that not only resonated with, resonated with the big audience, but still do. These are the films, I think, that most people remember when they think of Sidney Lumet. They think of these movies. So, as you know, there are many, many more that he made that um, we don't use in the film and that most people probably have never heard of. But um, I wanted to work with the films that have had a lasting impact on um, on his legacy and, and, frankly, on society. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, especially you watch uh, Network and you see how resonant that film is today. I mean, that's such a reflection of, uh, you know, today's society and the media and corporate America. It's, it's fascinating to watch that, even though it was made in 1976, that it's almost a, uh, a contemporary movie. It's true. It's so prescient. And I think that's what tickled Lumet. I mean, he said he just loved it. Not only did he think he made a good film, but he just felt that Patty Chavsky was so prescient in, in his screenplay. Uh, before you jumped into making this, what was your background on Sidney Lumet? Um, how familiar were you with his films? And had you ever uh, met Sidney Lumet? Oh, I wish I had. No, I had not. Um, I was familiar with the most the big ones. I, I certainly had seen Serpico, uh, Dog Day Afternoon. I had seen 
12 Angry Men years and years ago. I had seen The Pawn Broker. Um, let's see, Network, what else? Um, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, the last film he made. Um, and probably had seen a few others. Um, I can't tell you exactly which ones for sure, but the ones I just mentioned are the ones that certainly I remembered had a huge impact on me and what made me want to do the movie. Yeah, and watching uh, the clips from Before the Devil Knows Your Dead, I remember seeing that when it was originally released, and it's just fascinating because he shot it digitally, and there's such a, I mean, it just has so much energy that you would never think that an 80-something-year-old made that film. You would, you know, yep, yep. it just absolutely... I mean, when, you, when you think about his first movie, which is 12 Angry Men, and his last movie, which is Before the Devil Knows You're Dead... How many filmmakers do you know bookend their careers with such two extraordinary movies? Yeah, and I mean, just and and you're right. Before the Neville Does, you're dead. Is so technically proficient. You know, this is not a guy who was slowing down or 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 being lazy about what he was doing technically. Yeah, and the energy of the film, the performances, and uh, you know, it's, it has this dark noir subject matter. But yeah. um, it's just it's fascinating to watch that the, the jewelry store robbery. Uh, the scene between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Albert Finney, uh, just, you know, some incredible chemistry among that ensemble cast. I completely agree with you. I mean, <laughs> I, it's, it, frankly, it's one of my favorite movies of his, and, and uh, you know, of, of many films. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, so going through the editing process, uh, you know, you mentioned listening to the interview and really going through it to determine how you wanted to sculpt the documentary. Um, how difficult is that to go through and determine how you want to lay everything out and and sort of you know figure out what the narrative of the film is going to be within this hour and 45 minute period? We had the job of sitting and listening and clipping that entire interview and that took almost three full weeks before we ever started cutting the film. Wow. So um, it took a long time. We clipped, we organized uh, mostly by theme and um, and then we had basically bins for every piece of that interview um, that we knew we could we could tap when we needed it. Uh, so you had divided it up based on subject matter, based on movie, and then sort of gone from there to determine how you wanted to lay it out. Right. Uh, but, but the more you listen to it, the more you get a sense of how you want to lay it out. I mean, I was I was pretty sure that we would follow this. Um, this transition, basically, that takes place in the interview, which is someone who says, I didn't do any of this intentionally. All I want to do is do my job, to get a job, to do my work. I love, I love doing my work. Um, it wasn't about the moral message. And then gradually, as you learn more about him and you understand where he, how he grew up and what kind of home he grew up in, a fairly stern Jewish home, and the influences on him as a child, um, and, you know, the things that start to matter to him as a human being, I think the story just tells itself, and you know which films to use to illustrate that. Uh, and then going into the films and picking out clips, um, how difficult was it to go through those and determine what you wanted to use and how it would correspond with the interview footage? One of, one of the beauties of working on this movie is that I spent, even before we walked into the edit, I spent about a month and a half watching every Sidney Lumet film from start, from chronologically. I watched, you know, from start to finish, as well as a lot of the TV material. 
And so I had a pretty good sense of which films were going to play the biggest role, but I wasn't totally sure. Um, and often which scenes would help me in telling the story. And again, I, I, I worked hard um, with my editor not to show clips that just illustrated a point. Um, I, I didn't want this to be show and tell. Sidney Lumet talks about making Dog Day Afternoon, and we see a clip of Dog Day Afternoon. We really wanted, I really wanted to um, explore the things that matter to him, um, the, the themes that, that matter to him and that seem to be coming out in his work. And so the, the clips are really used in a, a much more of a metaphorical way or symbolic way to reflect on the things that he's discussing. But again, it's not concrete. It's more almost in parallel with what he's saying. We're seeing these movies. Yeah, it was interesting to see the um, the connections between some of the films. Like you watch the scenes from Daniel, and then you go to the scenes from Running on Empty, and that father son dynamic, and what he was talking about with his own father, and you know the the guilt and sort of you know the the father's sins or the family sins being passed on. That was so there was such a, a you know a clear connection that you could see in the way you laid out those clips. The thing is that we all all filmmakers do certain things unconsciously. They, they, they think they're kind of on charge, in charge and on top of everything, but gradually if you look at their body of work, things come out in their body of work that they're not even aware of. And they learn about their work sometimes years later. Sometimes it's a result of an interview or it's a Q&A or they just somehow it all comes together in the middle of the night. Oh my God, I've been talking about this all along. And that's what we see happen to Sydney. And... Um, you know, I, I just, I, I felt like this is, I mean, one of the, also one of the beauties of, of an interview that comes so late in life is that you are looking back on your work and your life, and even though he didn't think he was, at that point, he was perfectly healthy, and he had just made a great film, so I don't think that he was thinking that this was going to be the last film, but you do get a little bit um, elegiac when you're talking at that age, and I think, you know, he starts to think about how some of these things connect. But I don't think he probably worked on those stuff intentionally. I don't think he worked on Daniel to reflect on his own relationship with his father. Um, but, you know, in fact, he connects Daniel and Running on Empty more to his relationship with his own children than he does to his relationship with his father. But um, I'm sure that he, at certain points, he probably said, oh, this is what I was doing. Uh, I'm curious for you because you've worked on um, documentaries before in the past. Coming into something where everything has already been shot and you're also going through archives of materials and other films, um, do you think that it's is it more difficult to to delve into something like this where you're taking footage that's already been collected versus going out and trying to find it in a way? Uh, not really. Um, I love archival footage. Um, my two previous documentaries relied a lot on archival footage, and I always think of them as gifts, as, as a kind of magical gift that, you know, once you have it, 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 it kind of changes your life. It's, it's almost like someone gives you a wonderful dress to wear that you didn't go out and buy, you didn't shop for it, but someone gives it to you and it has special meaning because it was given to you and it's something that you never expected to wear. You put it on and you feel different. Um, I, I really love that part of the process. So whether it's a studio film that provides the archival footage or 
gas footage that I used in my previous film or, um, you know, some cinema verite that was used in the film before that. It's just, it's all a gift and it's all wonderful to work with. What was Brett Ratner's role in coming on to the project and giving it support? He just gave us a very important um, piece of support at a time when we really needed it. We um, We were thrilled to get into the Cannes Film Festival and we had a lot of stuff that we had to do very quickly to get our film ready for Cannes. And we needed the financial support to do that, and he stepped up and he gave it to us. Martin Scorsese was a special advisor. He's um, he helped us put a lot of the pieces together. He's um, uh, he is a special advisor. He's looked at cuts. He's given us notes. Um, he I, I went to him because I knew he cared enormously for Sidney Lumet. He, he respects him as a filmmaker. I think he loves many of his films. Um, he is very knowledgeable about his work. And he wanted this to, he, at one point he said, this, a film like this, if it's done right, will be a gift to the American culture. And I think, I think that was really, that's where he comes from on that. He wanted, to, he wanted the culture to know who Sidney Lumet was, you know, his influences, and, and know more about his work. He just wanted to, to do something about his legacy. Yeah, he gave uh, great support to the uh, Ilya Kazan piece that I think ran on on uh, PBS a few years ago. Which well, was he also didn't just another... support that. I mean, he made that movie. He oh, was, he directed that. Uh, he narrates the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, he he just loves he loves Ilya Kazan, but he loves Sidney Lumet too. But Ilya Kazan was a particularly close um, relationship and influence on him. So you know, that's that's a movie that comes right right from him. Yeah, um, I was curious, sort of along the lines of you were saying Martin Scorsese giving you advice on various cuts of the film. As a filmmaker, how important is it for you to show the film and get feedback and, you know, sort of look at it objectively? Because I'm sure, you know, many filmmakers out there can relate. You know, you spend so much time working on something and it's hard to sort of see it beyond your own perspective, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's, it's really important to get that feedback. And it's not always a wonderful, a pleasant process. You know, you show your film. You, we, we do some rock cut screenings, and we invite people to see it. And, you know, what you want more than anything is everybody to just love it and not have any notes and just, you know, oh, don't touch anything. And that rarely happens because it's a process. And things that you see in the beginning stage of making the movie often change as you continue to move forward. You let your ideas gestate, you let your editing gestate, and um, and you really, I would advise any filmmaker not to skip that stage because it's it, the, the input that you get, even if the notes aren't, even if you don't accept the specific note, something that someone is responding to really usually has some reason for being and um, it's again. It may they may not actually know what it is that they, you know, someone else say. Well, why haven't you done this? And that might not be all that important. But the fact that they've noticed something in that section of the film that may tip you off to something that you missed. Um, you know, it's it's all so ephemeral, but it all kind of comes together in a wonderful process. And the film is is definitely advanced and improved as a result of those screenings. Yeah, no, it can definitely make you look at the film differently. It can make you focus on certain points and, you know, just rethink things that maybe even had nothing to do with the actual note that you were given. Totally. And actually, 
actually sometimes sitting in a rough cut screening and you can just feel the audience. You can feel them moving, squirming, laughing, looking bored. I mean, watching the film with other people in the room is very, very important. And also, you're so used to sitting in an editing room, looking at it on a relatively small screen, interrupting the film constantly while you're working. And then you sit down and you watch it in a theater with other people, and it's just a very different experience. As a documentary filmmaker, uh, what do you think it is about making a documentary that you enjoy the most? And um, do you have any preference between making a, a documentary versus making a straight narrative film? Um, it's a very loaded question. Um, I love the process of a film coming together. What I was saying before about the the gift of archival footage... I think the magic of it all coming together and, you know, you start off with nothing and suddenly you've got something on the screen that's almost like a living, breathing thing. And um, that's very, very exciting. And, you know, and, and feeling the story come together, feeling that you're telling it in a way that's going to resonate with other people because there's so many different ways to do it. You know, there's so many different ways to tell a story. And you can only hope that whatever is moving you emotionally about that subject will move other people. And you have to trust yourself. I mean, that's that's one of the things I've learned, that, you know, my gut about the emotional resonance of the film is something that I have to trust or I, or I don't want to live with, you know, I, don't, I can't live with a different kind of film. And someone else could make a different film and a very good film, but I, this, is, this is where it becomes personal because you, you invest in it emotionally. So that's a very long-winded way of saying that I love the process. Um, I have not made a narrative yet. I'm thinking about it. I've got a couple of projects kind of on deck, and I hope that I can bring some of the same tools to the uh, narrative process. And I kind of suspect, even though the various concrete steps that you take in making films will be different, I think that the end, the, the end process is the same, that you know, you're telling a story, that you're hoping that it will resonate emotionally and intellectually with people and that um, you trust that emotional, those elements to, um, you know, let the story live and breathe. And um, the one thing that I hope all the films will have in common is that they'll have a value system that's important to you. That, you know, the message in the movies, whether they're documentaries or feature films, narratives, will have... um, certain values that I care about and you know, want to communicate.